Well, it's an interesting phenomenon this time of year where people who are openly hostile to a crucified and risen Christ for most of the year are quite comfortable to remember Jesus in a manger. They're quite happy to take part in a celebration as long as they can have a toned down, meek and mild, helpless baby in a manger. And I think too often in the church we can do the same thing. We can tone Jesus down. This time of year, I, I mentioned, we often hear this passage from Micah read in, in much of the church. We often hear verses 2 to 4 read that contain that clear prophecy regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. But how often do we hear verses 1 and verses 5 and 6, those verses that speak about the annihilation of the Assyrian army? That's part of the story. That's the context in which this prophecy is given. And it's, it's worth noting that even those well-known prophecies in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, they actually have the same backdrop. The, the same threat of this Assyrian invasion that would annihilate Israel, that's the backdrop for those prophecies as well. And so it must be an important part of the context. You see, this threat of the Assyrian invasion and the deliverance from that invasion by this mysterious figure, well, that's part of the Christmas story. And it teaches us something of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us that that Jesus is not just a baby in a manger, but he is a great warrior. He is a mighty divine warrior who defends and delivers his people. And what I hope to show you later in the sermon is that the same divine eternal ruler of Micah 5 is one and the same with the angel of the Lord that we read of in first or second kings 19 that same angel of the lord that struck down an entire army in one night now micah 5 contains an amazing prophecy because it not only tells us where jesus would be born but it also gives these amazingly accurate details about who jesus is and what he would do for us. He was prophesied to be a great ruler, a king from Bethlehem. Some of you may know that Bethlehem means house of bread. It likely got its name because of the, the fertile soil there. And it's interesting that this little insignificant town that was really only known for having some really good dirt becomes known for something much greater. That this insignificant town would be known as the town that brought forth the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this prophecy comforts us by 
teaching us that our Savior is a great ruler, but he's also a tender shepherd who stands among us and redeems us and feeds us. Now, when we read the Old Testament, we shouldn't let the, the order of the books in our Old Testament Bible dis- determine chronology for us. Uh, though Micah appears later in our Old Testament Bibles, he ministered at the same time as Isaiah, and he ministered during the reign of King Hezekiah. And Micah preached and exposed the failures of Israel and Judah, and he warned about that Assyrian invasion which would come as God's judgment upon Israel for their unrepentant sin. It was a time of corruption and faithlessness, and the future of Israel was in doubt. And it's in the context of this dark time that God gives this wonderful prophecy about this great ruler and shepherd to be born in Bethlehem. And this reminds us that our sin and our faithlessness would never frustrates the plans of God. And just as he promised the coming Messiah to these people, these sinful people, the same can be true of us. That he promises us and he gives us this same Savior. So let's think about this prophecy. What does this reveal to us about the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, it reveals to us the home and the origin of this great ruler. It begins by naming Bethlehem as the birthplace of the Messiah. And you'll notice in verse 2 how the, the insignificance of this little town is noted for us. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Now, Ephrathah, or Ephrath, is just another ancient name for Bethlehem. And like house of bread referred to its fruitfulness, Ephrathah meant fruitful. Uh, But the emphasis here is that this great ruler would come from a humble place. This little town, it's said to be too little to be among the clans of Judah. This was a nowhere place. But knowing what we know of our Savior, we can see that this was a fitting place for our Savior to be born. Because he came, as Paul says in Philippians, in a state of humility. In ancient times, your your birthplace formed part of your identity. It was integrated into your name very often. If you were born in a humble place, it it was thought that you would lead a humble life. And Jesus was no exception. He was born in this humble place, and then he eventually grew up in a humble place in Nazareth. And here we see the, the great gospel paradox. That eternal God who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise that he became man 
and he humbled himself. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, only to again be exalted to the highest place. And so the fact that this ruler was born in Bethlehem becomes a confirmation of his identity. David, who foreshadowed Christ, he too was born in Bethlehem. And we see David ascend from this humble beginning as a shepherd to be exalted as king. But here we see that this ruler from Bethlehem, he would be David's greater son. But then we also see that this this child would be an eternal ruler, yet born of a woman. An eternal ruler, yet born of a woman. Listen, Listen to these verses. From you shall come forth for me, one is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. We find a very unique combination of attributes here. This ruler, he's going to come from a humble town, and yet somehow he has existed from eternity. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, or from eternity. But somehow, as an eternal being, he's going to be born of a woman. Verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then in verse 2, there is a statement, and we should hear this as the Heavenly Father speaking, from you shall come forth for me. Now that is the language of obedience. Jesus came forth for the Father, which is simply another way of saying what Jesus said so many times in his earthly ministry. I have come to do my Father's will. And so here is a ruler or king that is eternal, yet he is born of a woman. He comes forth for the Father to do his Father's will. In other words, to render obedience to his Father on behalf of his sinful people. I mentioned that Micah ministered alongside Isaiah. And there was likely an assumed knowledge of the prophecies from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9-6. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah 9-6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Micah speaking of the very same king. Micah tells us that the Christ would be born at an appointed 
time. And in Galatians 4, 4, Paul said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. We thought last week about how we needed a Savior who was both God and man. And here, again, we see God's great provision. And we hear this prophecy, and only Christ can fit these very unique, very specific predictions. And so we have his his home and his identity, his origin outline. But then secondly, in verses 3 and 4, we begin to see the redemptive work of this ruler pictured. Uh, Listen to verses 3 and 4. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The birth of this ruler is said to begin a time of great blessing, great redemption. His brothers will be returned to Israel. And in the Hebrew, that language of returning, that's the language of redemption. Being bought back from slavery, be be returned from exile. In fact, this word return here, it's the same uh, Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 23 when David says, he restores my soul. The coming of Christ is seen to be this wonderful era of salvation and grace. Now, notice how he is seen as a ruler who redeems his brothers, and by implication, his sisters as well. Notice verse 3 speaks of redemption coming to the people of Israel. And again, as we look what is born out in the book of Acts, we see the church being made up at first primarily of, of Jews, of Israelites. But then it goes beyond just Israel because we read that for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. That's an allusion to the inclusion of people like us. Gentiles into the church. And again, we look at the book of Acts, and even in those early stages, it's just Israelites, but then the gospel expands to the ends of the earth to include Gentiles. And we should notice, friends, this comforting truth we came across that last week as we considered Hebrews 2, that Those who belong to this ruler are his brothers and his sisters. That speaks to our privileges that we have in the Lord Jesus. Because of our union with him, we have the privilege of calling Jesus our brother. 
His father is our father. And that means he's not some distant, uninvolved ruler. He's our brother who is with us. He's our brother who cares for us. And this is further underlined than with this shepherd language where he is said to be a shepherd who feeds his flock. And we know that this is one of the Lord Jesus' favorite images to communicate his loving, saving work on our behalf. Verse 4 says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. And the word, the word shepherd there has the idea of feeding like a shepherd. He will stand and he will feed, he will shepherd his flock. In the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. Jesus picks up on those very same themes in John chapter 10. When he says that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd who feeds us by leading us into green pastures. And you'll notice that Micah says that in this shepherd we shall dwell secure. And you remember Jesus said the same thing, did he not? When he said he's the good shepherd, he also said that no one will snatch us from his father's hand. It speaks of our security in this great ruler and shepherd. And again, people would have heard this prophecy in unison with Isaiah's prophecies. Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Micah tells us where he would be born. But both emphasize his saving and powerful yet gracious rule. And this, this imagery of him standing among us as our shepherd I would submit to you that complements that title, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is God with us. And you'll notice the image here of him as shepherd. What is he doing? He's standing in the midst of his flock. God with us. And again, this communicates to us the closeness of our Savior to us. He's not distant. He's not uninvolved. He is God with us. But thirdly, and, and finally, and maybe more strangely, let's think about the ever-present deliverance of this ruler. I pointed out to you that the immediate context of this prophecy it, it comes right in between verse 1 and verses 5 and 6, which outline that threat of the Assyrian invasion. Um, it's chronicled in 2 Kings 19, where we, where we read uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, he was getting ready to attack Jerusalem. Um, Isaiah 36 and 37 reveal to us that Sennacherib was basically mocking King Hezekiah for his trust in the Lord. And if you look at verse 1 here, that's, that's what is behind 
Verse 1, muster your troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That's the language of mockery. We, we talk about a backhanded compliment. That's the idea there. It's a reference to Sennacherib taunting Hezekiah and that pending attack that's coming. So again, let's note the context. Verse 1, we have the threat of this Assyrian invasion. Verses 2 to 4 is this clear prophecy about Christ, this great ruler. And then verses 5 and 6, there is a promise of deliverance from the Assyrian threat by this very same ruler. It can seem a bit out of place in verse 6, and he shall deliver it. The, the referent is the same ruler to be born in Bethlehem. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Second Kings 19 reveals that God was faithful to this promise. We read how the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Now, if we did in the Old Testament a study of the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, we would find that he's no ordinary angel. We find that he possesses divine attributes. He receives worship. He's given divine titles. And he's spoken of as one in the same with God. Let me give you a few examples. In Genesis, remember Jacob wrestled with that angel. And later on, Jacob said this about that encounter. He said, I have seen God face to face. If we read carefully Exodus 3 and Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush, you read that account and the angel of the Lord speaks to Moses and then it just goes on to refer to that same being as the Lord. We see the same thing with Gideon in Judges 6 where he, he has this encounter with the angel of the Lord and he comes to realize that it is the Lord himself. The proper understanding of the angel of the Lord is that he is nothing less than the pre-incarnate Jesus before he took on flesh, coming and ministering to his people and helping them. In Malachi, Jesus is called the, the messenger of the Lord or the messenger of the covenant. And that word messenger is that same word, angel. Friends, it was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus who delivered his people from the Assyrians. And though Micah was prophesying about Christ's birth and the salvation that he would bring some 700 years in the future, 
as we often see in the Old Testament, there is sometimes an affirmation or a foretaste or a down payment in the present time. God gave his people a small taste of the greatness of his son in their day. And that powerful deliverance from the Assyrian army, as great as it was, as powerful as it was, it would pale in comparison to the greater deliverance that this ruler would bring when on the cross he would shield his people, not from an earthly army, but from the very wrath of his father for our sins. And there's an interesting parallel here because as we think about that Assyrian invasion, it's right to say that the people deserved that. They deserve the wrath of that Assyrian army. And it's also right to say that we too deserve the wrath of God. And yet this same Christ willingly shielded us from that wrath. And this same Christ is now alive. He is enthroned in heaven protecting us, shepherding us defending us from his and our enemies. This context is important because that deliverance from the Assyrians by the Son of God was a small taste of the deliverance from sin and death that Christ would accomplish at his cross. Now, what do prophecies like this teach us? Let me give you three things to think about as we close. I think it so clearly shows us the trustworthiness of God and his word. We see that this, it's an amazing prophecy and how only Christ could have fit these descriptions. We see so clearly how this prophecy given 700 years before the birth of Jesus was fulfilled to perfection. This reminds us that God and his word are to be trusted. Secondly, it teaches us not to misread Jesus' humility. Yes, Jesus humbled himself. Yes, he was born in a humble place. And yet that does not mean that we should not have a healthy measure of fear. The slaughter of 185,000 Assyrians is part of the Christmas story. I pointed out that the world is very much okay with Jesus as a helpless baby in a manger, but they're not okay with a mighty, powerful, risen king who demands that we humble ourselves before him and worship him. And I think we need to ask ourselves, have we in some way 
Have we misread his humility? Have we brought him down to our level? We need to remember that Jesus, who was a baby in a manger, is the same warrior who struck down an entire army. But finally, it assures us that we have an ever-present, all-powerful, eternal Savior. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. His eye does not blink. As we read, his coming forth was from the days of old, from eternity. And that means he is always present with his people. It's remarkable that even in the Old Testament, while they waited for Christ to come as a man, even though they were often faithless and disobedient, we see that he was still with them. He he was still among them, ministering to them. And although we have seen this prophecy fulfilled in, in the incarnation of Christ, we're in a similar position. Because like our brothers and sisters of old, we trust, we struggle to trust in a Savior that we can't see. And we're reminded that though we do not now see him, he's still with us. He's still Emmanuel. He's still with us, ministering to us, caring for us. He's the one that ensures that we will dwell secure and we can find comfort knowing that he does all of this despite our sin and our disobedience and our failures he's the ever-present savior who will not leave us or forsake us and prophecies like these help us to love the one whom we do not yet see And long for that day when we will see him as he is in all his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for a humble Savior who is also a great and powerful King. Lord, we pray that, Lord, you might lift our hearts and minds to this mighty Jesus. Lord, may we worship him, may we bow at his feet as those wise men did so many years ago. And Lord, may we find comfort in the fact that our king is indeed gentle and lowly, but he is also powerful and able to save and uphold us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you so loved us that you sent your only son to die for us, your spirit to live within us. Lord, help us to worship you and to live for you, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory.